Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome back to the Treatment Room Podcast, everybody. I'm your host, Tessa Zolli. So happy to be here with you. Thank you for tuning in. Hope you're having a great week. I know it's been a little wacky with the full moon two super moons in August. So I hope everyone's hanging in there. I always love chatting with you. I feel like it's a very grounding part of my week. And today I want to do a little Q&A episode and just get right into the questions that I know you have for me. And remember, you can always follow along on social media. My handle is linked in the show notes. It's my SD Tessa if you're not following along already. And I tend to post a question box two or three times a week. Really helps me stay connected to you guys and just hear you out, hear what's going on with you, and hear your struggles. So just know you can always submit your questions over there. And I look forward to hearing from you. So let's dive right in. I have a question from Lindsay K Beauty. Shout out to Lindsay. She asks, what are the worst skincare lines that you have used or or that exist? Oh man, I'm sure there's a lot of bad stuff out there. It takes a lot to make a really good formula. And let this just be my little disclaimer. I'm obviously (laughs) the pickiest of the picky because this is my business, my clients' results reflect me. So I, of course, want to work with brands I feel very confident in. I never want to waste anyone's time, especially because by the time somebody comes to me for an acne consultation, they've usually been through it for years. They've probably seen a number of professionals and I never want to drag that process out. So I really want tools in my toolbox that I feel I can count on that's going to give me the best possible result. So yeah, just let that be known. I'm looking for brands that have significant clinical research, data, backing, and that you know I know I can count on for my results. And The other thing I look for, which I feel like this isn't talked about enough, but I'd say when we talk about over-the-counter skincare and professional skincare, you know, I agree there's no formal category or FDA, I should say, there's no FDA labeling that's technically difficult, uh, that's technically different between OTC and professional skincare, but where the designation for me is really significant is that there are brands that professionals work with and rely on for their results. And that is very much a thing. And I think these brands are held to a different standard because businesses depend on them. It's not just a a brand that heavily relies on marketing to the consumer. I mean, of course, that's part of every every brand, but 
I'd say there's a little bit of a distinction in that not only does the consumer have to be impressed, the professional has to be impressed enough that they're willing to invest in the line. So I think that takes a lot. And the other thing I would point out with professional skincare versus consumer products is that when we're looking at a professional line, there is a lot of thought putting into the overall system and developing protocols for different skin types. Whereas if we're looking at a brand at Sephora, they are focused on the next big hit and, you know, what is going to be their next big chemical exfoliant? What's going to be their next moisturizer that kind of appeases the consumer? Whereas a lot of these professional lines are focused on creating protocols for different skin types, protocols that can be duplicated for different people and really work for them to achieve a desired result. So a professional company does tend to focus on a line that is really synergistic, products that work together. Oftentimes it's products that can be cocktailed, products that can be layered depending on what the client needs. And to me, that's incredibly valuable because I know everybody's threshold, especially with something like acne or hyperpigmentation, different people require different levels and really customizing the protocol to their skin, their needs, the amount of pigment or excess keratin that they produce. So that's something to me that is like a game changer. And you might have a really great over-the-counter product, but can it be used? Can I depend on it as a professional in the way that I can with a professional line? Now, to answer your question, Lindsay, you know, there's brands that have winners and losers, and I think that's true for absolutely every line out there. I would say the lines that I'm continuously seeing issues with, and again, take it with a grain of salt. Somebody might love this. My opinion is just my opinion, but I do see issues with consumer lines like the ordinary, for example, I'd say the issue here is that for one, the price point is so low and having been on the other side as a brand, I don't know how they even get their prices that low to profit from them. It's obviously a different business model and they have a huge scale, but still to get their pri- their products at the price point they are <laughs> is very curious to me. And I think the issue with this low price point is that somebody feels comfortable buying, you know, seven to 10 things and really playing chemist and mixing and matching. It's very enticing to have a low price point like that. But I think the issue is once you kind of get into this habit of trying one thing, it doesn't work. You just keep adding more and adding more. And that's where we can run into a lot of issues with compromise barrier, with overstripping the skin, with creating surface dryness, with creating inflammation. I just don't love that it really entices the consumer to feel like they are a chemist, to feel like they are a professional, to feel like they can mix and match all these things that 
you know, the company hasn't put any data out to say you should mix these things. This is our approved protocol that's been tested and is safe for you to try. So that's the issue I see there. I would say, you know, there's other other brands like Glossier that I just see so many issues with it congesting the skin, whether it's a concealer or a moisturizer and totally applaud them on their branding, which is super cute, but experienced the most issues myself during the peak of my acne when I was using those products. And I, I was so confused because I felt like, okay, I'm investing good money in these products. They're obviously popular. The people around me, my peers are buying these products and my skin is an absolute disaster. So, uh, you, you just don't understand like what could the problem be? And I think this is where comedogenicity testing is really important. I hope in the future testing for acne prone skin is more mainstream. I think it is starting to be, we're seeing a lot of makeup brands, start to put more thought into this. And here's the other thing, really any brand can say they're non-comedogenic. It's not a regulated term. So bear that in mind, but I do see at least more effort happening. And I think that's just really, really important for the consumer to understand ingredients matter. Skin can congest, even skin that's never congested before, which is you know, what happened to me as I kind of fell in love with makeup and with skincare. And as I continued to kind of fall down this marketing rabbit hole, things got worse and worse and worse. And what does that tell us about the industry as a whole? They don't care as much about what could cause your skin issues, what could congest your skin. So you have to be really careful when you are shopping for skincare and for makeup And that's where I do think working with an esthetician or at least shopping from an esthetician that has really vetted certain lines for problematic skin is just a much better way to go. It's more ethical to support small business versus these big companies that really only care about their bottom line versus what happens to your skin. So that is (laughs) my roast. The next question is from XOXOMIC222. She wants to know what is the best thing for non-inflamed acne? You guys, this is not talked about enough, but I think it's really interesting that we've created these marketing subsets, non-inflamed acne and inflamed acne, in talking to more dermatologists, more acne specialists, even Douglas Preston, who was on the pod a couple episodes ago and just doing more research, technically all types of acne involve some level of inflammation. I think we're talking about acne that either has visible redness around it, such as a hormonal cyst, or acne that does not, maybe like a closed comedone, a whitehead. But technically there is still inflammation with all types of acne. It is a inflammatory condition at its core. So I just think that's interesting and kind of goes to show how these terms come about. And sometimes we just go with them and different brands, different professionals, we all kind of hop on it because it feels like it's just a fact and it's education, but 
got to question everything, basically. I did want to take this question as an opportunity to talk more about closed comedones because I think this is just an area I see so many people struggle with. It's the type of acne I personally struggled with, and it is the most stubborn. It takes the longest to treat, which can be surprising because you might see somebody with grade three acne. You might see a lot of inflamed cysts that you would think are really the hardest type of acne to treat, but closed comedones are actually the hardest type to treat because we have oil building up. It's hardened in the follicle and we have dry dead layers kind of sealing it over top. So it's more difficult to get to the impaction, to get to the oil because we have to do all this work in nourishing and hydrating the skin and really softening that outer layer. First, let's talk about what actually causes closed comedones. I just thought this was really interesting. There's some things I hadn't heard before that I wanted to share. So comedones arise when cells lining the sebaceous duct proliferate, which we know we, we've talked about this as cornification, keratinization, excess skin cells shedding in the follicle. That's a mouthful. And then we also have increased sebum or oil production. So it's this perfect storm of oil and dead skin cells really sticking together in that sebaceous duct and hair follicle. It is now known that comedones also involve inflammation. So again, all acne is actually inflammatory. The development of comedones may involve the following factors. First, we have excessive activity of the male sex hormone, 5-testosterone, aka DHT, within skin cells. And we always talk about this in acne hormonal fluctuations are part of the acne problem. And it can even be normal hormone fluctuations. Doesn't necessarily mean you have a hormone imbalance because you have acne. Next, we have reduced linolate, which is the salt of the essential fatty acid, linoleic acid, in sebum. This causes more scale, which is essentially more flaking on the surface of the epidermis, and reduced barrier function. Really interesting. Next, we have pro-inflammatory cytokines. These are the cell signaling proteins. And these cytokines are produced by cells lining the follicle in response to activation of the innate immune system. Next, we have free fatty acids made from sebum by acne bacteria. And then really important with closed comedones is overnourishing the skin. This could be moisturizers that have acnegenic ingredients. It could be that the environment is really humid. It could be another topical that contains really congestive ingredients. It could be an oily pomade, could be a conditioner, could be isopropyl myristate, commonly found in tretinoin. It could be propylene glycol and certain dyes in cosmetics. I see this with a lot of red dyes in, you know, blushes or bronzers. And I most commonly see closed comedones on the chin 
and the forehead. And I think, you know, the jawline makes sense because we have larger hair follicles there. We can produce more sebum. The forehead tends to be, you know, a thinner tissue and it can kind of be a catch-all for products we're putting in our hair, makeup, sunscreen. So in that way, you want to be really, really careful with anything that could transfer to your skin from your hair or any products that are really getting trapped and built up in that area. I always suggest putting on a, like a little spa headband or something to push the hair back so that you can really cleanse thoroughly and treat the area as you need to. Also, when you're applying, you know, any type of active products or serums, make sure you're not stopping before you kind of get up into that, that hairline. You want to make sure all the skin is treated. Next, I thought this was really, really interesting. Smoking. Comedonal acne is more common in smokers than in non-smokers. I would guess it has to do with asphyxiating the skin, aka the skin not getting the oxygen that it needs, which helps to kill bacteria. If you think of a stream of water, if you think of a swamp, things aren't healthy. It's not a healthy environment because things are really stagnant. And when there's circulation, when water is free flowing, it, it remains a lot healthier. So another reason to quit smoking or attempt, I know it's much easier said than done, but really, really something that can take a toll on the skin. Next, we have certain dietary factors. We know this can contribute to comedonal acne, particularly milk products and high glycemic index food. This can be sugars, it can be fats, it can be very processed carbohydrates. So this is something I like to work with clients on -on one-on-one because I think everybody's at a different place with food in their life. You want to be careful in removing certain food groups or adjusting certain habits if somebody's in a vulnerable place. I really like to work just carefully with women especially, but, you know, guys too, of course, but always talk with people about the diet and get a sense for what they're consuming regularly and and hopefully just take an approach that's kind of one thing at a time, working to really remove the biggest triggers and, and find what feels doable for the client. Now, XOXO Mick 222 had asked, like, what's the best thing? How do you treat closed comedones? With all acne, I think it's a really, it's a complex thing. There are many factors involved. And I think if you can afford to see a professional, whether it's me or somebody else that you trust or find, I think it's such a time saver. It really helps to have accountability. It helps to have direction. And there's just a lot to know about acne. And there's a reason people really specialize in it. I think you can get into tricky territory or just not see the results you want and become really disheartened and frustrated and in a low a low place mentally if you're trying to do this on your own. 
But I would say with closed comedones in particular, since it is such a stubborn form of acne and it can involve more needs and more, more topicals, I think it's something that's really wisely treated by a professional. I do love using ingredients like benzoyl peroxide. I love glycolic acid. I love retinoids, but you know, those are some serious topicals. They need to be used in a smart way. And the other half of treating acne is really getting the skin prepared to receive those ingredients. If the skin is not ready, if it's not strong, if you haven't spent enough time really rebuilding the skin, all of these things can backfire. The skin can become even more dry. And that's what we want to avoid with closed comedones because again, it's not just the oil getting trapped, it's the dryness also creating more of a problem. So you really want to be strategic with closed comedones. You want to be patient. The other thing that's tricky as a, a, um, just a person trying to treat their acne and acne suffer. The thing is acne can worsen before it gets better. And if, if you're not a professional, if you're not experienced with treating acne, sometimes you don't know, is this normal? Is this really bad? Do I need to, what do I need to do? Um, and should I continue to see this through? That's where I think guidance is, is really important. So that is closed comedones for you. Aesthetics by Katie asks, what has been the skin condition that has been the most challenging to treat? Ooh. Oh, okay. I have good answers for this. You know, I'd say off the top of my head, a challenge that I think I'm constantly being confronted with is this very tricky combination of skin that is oversensitized. There's poor barrier function. It's what I call weak skin. And I don't mean that any kind of negative way. I was <laughs> this person who had weak skin because I was just pummeling my skin with really harsh actives, with chemical peels in SD school. I was using rubbing alcohol to try to just kill bacteria. I was just putting tea tree, pure tea tree on my skin. And at the same time, I had acne. And I see a lot of people in the same boat because they've tried to treat the condition themselves, or they've tried to just take what, what they see online and apply it to their specific position. And I would really make the analogy. It's very much like if you want to start a strength training program in the gym, you're not going to walk into the gym and just pick up a hundred pounds and start doing deadlifts because this is a type of move that needs to be very precise. You really have to get the form down. You need to work up to increase weight. Otherwise you're going to strain your neck and your back and you might be out of commission and hurt yourself and, you know, not be able to work out for weeks or a month. And through experience, I've learned when you're working on a compromised barrier and when you've never worked on a person before, it's, it's really to your benefit to 
start slower because you can always add more weight. You can always increase the strength of active ingredients, but if you overdo it, it's really hard to go back. And once you lose that trust, it can be gone forever. So I'd say that can be tricky because if somebody's looking at you who's hurting because of an acne condition, they just want it gone and you have certain tools at your disposal as, as the professional, oftentimes it's, you know, us in good faith trying to just give the client a really effective treatment. But you have to remember when you've never worked on somebody, you don't know what they have been using on their skin day in and day out. We don't always even get the full story with clients in terms of the amount of sun exposure they've had, how much damage they've done to their skin. So I would say it, it can be a challenge treating oversensitized skin and barrier dysfunction in combination with acne because you really need to spend the time rebuilding the skin and getting in a place where it's ready to receive those, those more intensive active topicals. And yeah, I think that can just be hard because we want to give somebody the best possible result as soon as possible. But I do find, I think more often than not, people are willing to be patient and they're willing to take the route that's best for them in the long term. The professional just has to lead and they have to set the expectation. If you're able to really explain why you're going slow and why you need to spend time repairing the barrier. I think that helps to build a long-term relationship. You're attracting a client that's, you know, in it for the long run. They are trusting you that as the professional, I would much rather have that than a situation where the client is kind of steering the ship or the professional is making decisions based on um, maybe like a scarcity mindset or, just feeling they have to give the client what they're asking for. You really have to do what's best for long-term skin health. So that's tricky, treating skin that's really sensitized and acneic, but it can be done. And then I'd say, secondly, fungal acne is something that can be challenging to treat. Oftentimes it's tricky because it's not only fungal acne, it can be a mixture of fungal acne and you know, more standard acne that involves uh, congestion. So when you're treating fungal acne, it usually doesn't respond to traditional acne topicals. It can actually backfire and it can worsen. And fungal acne can even present a lot like inflamed acne. So That's where, you know, things can be trickier. Sometimes it does involve a referral out or a medication or even a like topical shampoo for fungal acne. But, you know, along with that, oftentimes the skin is even sensitized in that case because somebody has tried to treat it themselves. The skin has been very overdried. It's been more inflamed and another situation where (laughs) you want to take your time and you want to keep in mind, it's okay that I'm not fixing everything at once. Sometimes you need to look at the most important piece of the puzzle and treat that 
first before moving on to the, you know, kind of next priority. And I think that's something that's just a challenge within the industry is that it's never just one thing we're treating, right? Like usually somebody has three to four concerns that really matter to them. And it's not always possible to treat them fully all at once. So I'd say like learning to talk to people, learning to read people, learning to lead people and making the smart judgment call per each scenario is a challenge, but it's also, I kind of love that about our industry. Like really no two skins are the same. There's always different conditions and different overlap. And that's what I think keeps it interesting. And when you do solve it for somebody, when you are that person out of many professionals who can actually help somebody, that is the most gratifying thing, whether it took four months or a year. And that makes you somebody that is irreplaceable to that client, somebody they will never, ever forget. And I think that is such a blessing and a reason we're so lucky to have this job as estheticians. Aesthetics by Katie also asks, what are the worst skincare trends you've seen? You know, I'd say the ones that I really worry about are ones that could do damage to the skin barrier, whether it's like a tanning product or something that has like crazy suction or a crazy at-home microneedling device. I know there are some channels that really promote at-home intensive treatments that really should be done by a licensed professional. So those are always scary. I've also seen this terrifying TikTok about a new nasal spray on the market that essentially helps you tan more easily and get a darker tan. And I could totally see people just seeing that video and thinking, oh my gosh, that's amazing. It's going to save me time. It's going to get me that dark tan that I want. But you have to realize when something is really promoting pigmentation, sure, you might have a tan that looks nice for a couple weeks, but that tan fades and the, the damage that's done to our cells and that comes up as hyperpigmentation later in life, it's, it's stored and the skin has a memory. You may not see that damage now, but it is really stored and it, it can potentially be very dangerous and just harmful to your skin, prematurely age your skin. So anything like that, I just, I don't love <laughs> Last question, also from Lindsay K. Beauty. She says, client horror story, either in your treatment room or that they shared with you. I would say, you know, there's really one that (laughs) has stuck in my brain that I'll never get over because it was so embarrassing. It was so humiliating. I feel like we all have a story like this. But essentially, this was very early in my career. I think it was probably the first three months of working at a new medical spa. I'd given a facial. I think what hurt was that I thought it was so great. I really put my all into it. And at this spa, we were pretty serious about extractions. We would spend 10 or 15 minutes. And I was I was trained very well in extractions. We were really taught to scan the face thoroughly and just 
just make it feel super thorough, make it feel like nothing was skipped. But anyway, give the facial, it ends, everything seems fine. She gets dressed, I leave the room. I think I went to go take my little 10 minute break. I'm in my little closet taking my break and I just hear yelling in another language at the front desk who happened to be my boss. I think she was filling in at the front desk that day, just to my luck. And, you know, I just heard her basically saying the extractions were only so and so minutes. It wasn't enough. She felt like ripped off basically that it was only that amount of time and that, that there were other things done in the facial that just weren't extractions. AKA, I didn't spend enough time on the thing that was most important to her. And I actually get that. And I know how it can feel when you're in, when you're on the treatment room table and you're wanting the provider to spend the time on something and they're maybe doing massage, doing (laughs) other tools. And the whole time you're just thinking, I am literally just here for extractions and to clear my skin. And although it probably wasn't executed in the best way, I think there's always something to learn from those experiences. They absolutely suck in the moment. You want to just crawl out of your skin. You feel like an imposter. You feel like a letdown. Like I remember thinking about that incident (laughs) for weeks and just really letting it shake my confidence. But in the facials to come, I think I was so much more communicative with my clients. I was always like, I always had that in the back of my mind that somebody could be unhappy about that. So I think I really sought to understand what the client was there for and where I could best invest my time in the treatment room. I think this is where it can also be tricky for professionals who are told like, you need to follow this protocol for everyone. Everyone needs this long of a massage, this amount of time spent on a mask or so-and-so thing. And you don't necessarily have the freedom to customize, but I think it just goes to show it's a really smart thing to customize treatments based on what the customer is looking for. And at the same time, if it doesn't make sense to spend 20 minutes on extractions, which is really long and is probably too much for one appointment, the professional could then explain, you know, I'm, I'm going to get everything out that I can just for the sake of your pain threshold. Like we'll see where you're at. There's a possibility we won't get it all out today. And in that case, like I'd love to see you in three weeks or whatever it may be, but having more communication. And as I always like to say, setting the expectation, making sure you and the client are on the same page. I think that will always, always save you. And I think that can be applied just to any type of treatment, to any type of client. Everybody has something they're looking for. And as the professional, it is our job to really understand what is what is that main thing to the client? And then if it's not possible, you can then have that conversation. You can try to get on the same page again. But 
I think the worst possible outcome is that somebody doesn't get to share what is the most important to them. And then they leave the facial or they leave your business feeling some type of way and you are surprised about it later. So that's what we want to avoid with clear communication. It will probably save you like 95% of the time. All right, guys, I hope you liked this episode. I loved, loved, loved these questions today. So please keep them coming. I will continue to post more question boxes. So I empower you and encourage you to leave your question. I'd love to shout out your handle and just shout out more estheticians. So thank you guys for listening. I appreciate you. Have a great rest of your day and I will talk to you next week.